Here is a chameleon. I'm sure we all know what they are famous for. Um, a chameleon can change colour based on its surroundings, which is very useful if they're not wanting to be eaten by a passing bird or, or similar things. Um, this is Cristiano Ronaldo. He is not a chameleon. He is not the kind of person who blends in easily to the background. Um, in fact, this week, I was looking up how many Instagram followers he had. Anyone want to have a guess how many Instagram followers Cristiano Ronaldo has? Six million. Two. No, keep going up. Keep going up. It's more than two. It's more than six million. Six, 50 million. All kinds of figures. 600 million. A bit lower than that. 401 million at the beginning of the week. By the end of the week, it was 414 million. Just to put that into context, the population of the European Union is fairly similar. So it's that kind of number of people. Compare that to Boris Johnson and his 1.5 million, and you will see the kind of influence that Cristiano Ronaldo has. Some people in life influence. Some people in life stand out. Some people stand out for the right reasons. Some people stand out for the wrong reasons. Some people blend in for the right reasons. Some people blend in for the wrong reasons. Well, this morning, we're on our second week of what I would probably call a mini-series, looking at some of the readings from the tour. The tour was this Bible plan that we've been looking at for the last year, and there's a number of us have sort of picked um, some of the readings that perhaps we wanted to say a little bit more about than you can say in 300 words. So this morning, we're looking at one that I looked at um, sort of quite late on in the tour, and it's the letter to the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22. Now, these are words written down by the Apostle John, but they are the words of Jesus himself to the church. They are the words to a specific congregation at a specific time. And they are words of rebuke, essentially. This church is not going very well. Things are not great in this fellowship. And as we'll see, Jesus has quite a lot to say to them. But just before we open our Bibles... Just a little bit of background as to Laodicea. If you're into maps, that's where it is, somewhere in that red ring there in what is modern-day Turkey. But Laodicea was a prosperous place. It was a wealthy town. It was a good place to be, especially if you were a banker, if you made clothes, or you made a special kind of eye ointment. That's what it was famous for. Three things. Banking and commerce, textile making, and eye ointment. But there was a problem. There was a problem in the town, and the problem was with the water supply. The water supply was tepid, lukewarm, full of lime and minerals. Not the kind of water that you really want to drink. And it came through a complicated series of aqueducts. And this is part of it. That's part of the aqueduct that is still left. The Romans built things to last, didn't they? There we go. That's where the water used to flow from six miles in the south right into the center of Laodicea. But the towns round about, well, they had much better water. Some towns had, I think to the south, had nice cold springs. So on a hot day, you go and get your nice cold glass of water and it refreshes you. To the north, there were hot springs that were healing, healing springs, spa springs. You know, like you might get in Harrogate or Buxton or somewhere like that. These type of nice places to go. So knowing a little bit about the area, let's dive in. If you've got a Bible in front of you, or you can follow it on the screen. I'm going to read Revelation 3, 14 to 22. To the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen. 
the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Lord, these words are not easy ones to hear, they're not easy ones to wrestle with, but we just pray as we see what you said to this church in Laodicea, we just open our hearts to you and say, Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you reveal to us where perhaps we are lukewarm as well and what that looks like in our lives? And Lord, we pray that you will shake us and move us into the people that you would have us be for your glory, for your kingdom's sake, we ask. Amen. Now, I've heard this passage preached on quite a number of times over the years. And normally, I've heard it preached on as a kind of call for revival, you know, renewal. Don't be cold, be on fire for God. Don't be lukewarm, don't sit in the middle and have some kind of apathetic nominalism, but stoke the fervor of your heart and be on fire for God. Now, that is a great message. I don't want to take away from that message at all. But only to say that is not actually what I believe Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. That is not the problem that Jesus identifies with them. They are a church that has fallen in to lukewarm living. Now, I'm no advertising specialist, but I don't think that would make it as an advertising slogan. You know, come to Haven Holidays at Easter and experience lukewarm living. It's not exactly going to be the kind of thing that draws in the crowds. We don't go to a cafe and say, you know, enjoy a nice tepid bowl of soup with us or come round for a nice lukewarm cup of tea. They are not things that we think of as good. We know that lukewarm is not brilliant. But the metaphor here, the illustration that Jesus uses about lukewarmness is quite an interesting one. And I think it is based on the context in which Laodicea exists as a city. Look at verse 15 and 16 if you've got a Bible in front of you. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, it can be tempting, can't it, to think that cold and hot are opposite ends of the spectrum. The cold is really, really bad, and hot is really, really good. And Jesus wants us to be really, really hot and on fire and be filled with the Spirit. Now, absolutely, he does want that. But I can't think of a single scripture where Jesus says, I want you to be cold. And yet, that's what it says here. I would rather you were hot or cold. So what is he talking about? Jesus is always calling us back to him. Jesus is always calling us to have a stronger faith. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, it says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Jesus is not saying to these Christians, here, look, I want you to switch off from me. I want you to disappear and become cold. 
or become hot, but just don't be in the middle. It's something slightly different. And it seems to have something to do with the water supply in the city. Now, you can have a read around this. Don't take my word for it. I always say this in sermons. You know, as preachers, we are not infallible. Go and look it up if you disagree with me. As long as it's based on the Bible, that's okay. Um, But have a look. See what you think. But this makes sense if we understand this passage in relation to this issue with the water supply. This tepid, nasty water that comes into the city that is undrinkable, that is full of bacteria and will make you sick. And the only thing you can do with it is to spit it out. If somebody gave you a glass of it, you would not be able to drink it. So cold water is great. We all like cold water on a hot day. Hot springs. I don't think I've ever been in a hot spring, but I understand they are very nice. Anyone been to Iceland? I don't mean the supermarket, but anyone been to Iceland? (laughs) Yeah? Nice. Anyone been in the hot springs? Yeah, I'm getting some good thumbs up there. Positive experience. We know that those two ends of the spectrum are really good. But the tepid lukewarmness of this compromised water supply is not good. But what has happened to this water? Well, if you've been to Turkey or you've been to Greece or somewhere around that part of the Mediterranean, you will know that if you were a water supply and you were sat in the sun for six hours, it would get warm. But it wouldn't become usefully warm. It wouldn't get to be like a hot bath. It would just become this nasty tepidness. And so the lukewarm church is a bit like the chameleon. It has just taken in its surroundings, it has blended in and become indistinct. It's become useless, ineffective in Christian proclamation, ineffective of the ministry of the kingdom, and all it is fit for in the sight of Jesus is to be spewed out of his mouth, just like lukewarm water, just like that kind of tepid drink. And so we get another scene in this passage. It's as if now we move to imagine a tribunal or a court scene. And we get two witnesses drawn upon. The first one is the church who give an assessment of where they think they are up to. And the second one is Jesus who actually says the reality. So have a look at verse 17. This is, if you like, witness one. This is what the church thinks of itself. I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. What on earth has happened to this church? What has happened to them? They're self-satisfied. They've got money, they've got things, but they are just sitting in that self-satisfaction. Just think back. I'm sure many of us at primary school learned about the Romans. If you didn't learn about the Romans at primary school, I'm hoping you've you've watched a documentary on them at some point in your life. And you will be able to cast your mind back to those times of thinking about what life was like for a wealthy Roman. You imagine the nice Mediterranean villa with your cypress trees down, we wouldn't have a drive, would you, because people didn't drive, but down your pathway, you're there with these elegant mosaics on your floor, your underfloor heating for when it goes cold, you're there eating the finest food, drinking the finest wines, and you're there with the slaves who will meet your every need when you want it. It was a good life if you were a wealthy Roman, and in Laodicea, they were wealthy. If you had money, it was a life to live, not for poor people, not at all. But for wealthy people, like the people in Laodicea, it was a good life. But what this church seems to have done is just totally absorbed this culture without thinking about it. They have just become Christians, but carried on living without critiquing the way that the kingdom of God should change how they are. And so they feel self-satisfied. They think that they don't need anything. You know, the problem when we don't need anything is actually we shut God out. We think we don't need God. And when we don't need God, our spiritual life just goes down the path. It just really sinks down. 
So they think they are self-sufficient. They think they are cushioned from the world's problems. You know, money can do that, can't it? It can give us the illusion that we can be self-secure. If we've got money and we hear that prices are going up, we think, well, actually, it's a bit of an inconvenience, but we'll be okay. If you're on the poverty line, that can sink you. That can mean that life becomes pretty horrendous. But this church, they think they're okay. They think everything is fine. And yet then we get Jesus' assessment of them. Look at verse 18. Jesus gives, if you like, the witness statement from the head of the church. And he says, verse 18, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Not exactly the most positive of statements to speak over a church. You see, the self-satisfaction of this church is just an illusion. They think they are all sorted, but actually, spiritually, in the eyes of Jesus, the head of the church, they have become useless. They are no longer able to be of kingdom use. And look at those last three words. Poor, blind, naked. What did the Laodiceans pride themselves in being? Rich. They were a city of bankers. Second thing, what did they pride themselves in doing? Making eye ointment. What did Jesus say? You're blind. Thirdly, what did they make in the town clothes? What did Jesus say? You're naked. And so what Jesus did is he speaks directly into their context with language that would cut them to the heart. You know, I believe firmly that God does speak to us today. By his spirit, he speaks to us. Don't be surprised if God speaks to us in detail. You know, in ways that we can understand, in ways that really cuts into our context and draws us back to God. Well, Jesus doesn't leave them there. And I think this is the beautiful thing that Jesus always does. He doesn't just leave people and say, you're awful. He then says, actually, this is what you should do. This is how you get back to where you want to This is how you recover to be spiritually useful. Again, look at verse 18. He invites them, by gold refined in the fire. By gold refined in the fire. Now, you'll be pleased to know I don't spend a lot of my life refining gold. I'm not an amateur alchemist or anything like that either. Um, But I understand with gold that the more you heat it up, the more the impurities rise to the surface. And to get a a purer carrot of gold requires a lot more skill and a lot more heat. And so the more you do that, the, the greater the purity. So Jesus here is saying, you know, forget the material wealth that you think you've got sorted. I've got the wealth of the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual riches that will not fail. And the closer you get to me, the more purity you will have in those. And then he offers them white garments. Again, textile town, clothing town. So that your nakedness is covered. See, Jesus doesn't come and say, you know, here's whatever the Roman equivalents are of Aporio Armani or some designer labels. He says, I will clothe your nakedness. You will have white robes to wear. The righteousness of the Son of God will be endowed upon you. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, your sin will be covered and you will be as white as snow. Beautiful words, beautiful promises of God to this church. And then salve for their eyes to let them see. It's eye ointment again, isn't it? They think they can see. They think they've got eyesight sorted. They've got this stuff. I don't know what it was, but they've got this stuff that they made in this town that they thought could help restore sight. And yet Jesus says, forget all that. You're spiritually blind. You can't see. But I can give you spiritual sight. I can enable you to see things God's way and to be able to encounter the world as God would want you to. And so with forensic detail, 
and this sounds very complicated, and contextualization, Jesus pulls this church apart and says, this is what you need to do. Pulls them apart and then puts them back together. And he actually reveals that there is so much more that could happen in this church. And so the question comes to us. What about us? Are we chameleon Christians? Do we blend in and think we're sorted? Or do we stand out distinctively for Jesus? Now, it can be that we can look at our culture, and our culture is is perhaps not as materially driven as it was, but it is still materially driven. And we can sell out to that, and we can think, well, as long as that's sorted, we're okay. There are lots of other ways, though, we can become chameleons. We can just sort of blend in, not be distinctive. There there was um, a letter written this week by the European Baptist Federation, and it was written to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. You can read it online. It's an open letter. I'm not sharing anything that's confidential. But to summarize it, I mean, this letter was very respectfully written to the head of the Orthodox Church. But the letter was saying something like this. Please distance yourself from Putin. Please distance yourself from the violence in Ukraine and come out and condemn it. Stand with us in what is going on. Sadly, to date, that hasn't yet happened. But we've seen it in our nation. We've seen it all too often where the church sidles up to power and actually gets influenced and becomes a chameleon. And it can no longer stand up and say, this is what the kingdom of God is about. It can no longer say, this is what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. And when we do that as Christians, we stop being a light in the darkness. We we stop being a voice into the wilderness. And we just become a chameleon. Are we like chameleons this morning? Are we distinctive enough? Now, how could we be distinctive? Well, Jesus gives us a lot of examples, doesn't he? Love your neighbor as yourself. Very simple. We love one another. Love the stranger. Welcome in the refugee. And that will probably be something we will be put to the test on in the next few weeks and months. Remember, Jesus has highlighted a problem in this church. It's not what they were believing, but it was their deeds. It was what they were doing that was visible to the outside world. Now, over the centuries, sometimes Christians have tried to look distinctive, and to be honest, it's not really worked. Um, In the second and third centuries, there were those who thought being distinctive meant climbing up the top of a pillar and sitting in the Syrian desert for the rest of your life. Please don't go and do that. You will be distinctive, but I'm not quite sure of the benefit of it. There are other ways. I can think in my own life, sort of looking back to ways that, you know, I've tried to think, well, how can I be distinctive as a Christian? And trying to popularize the gospel in terms of how it fits with contemporary culture. And I can look back and sometimes think it was really cringy and really not that great. And yes, it was distinctive, but probably not in the best way. Jesus gives us so many examples in his word about how we are distinctive as Christians how we are to love unconditionally, how we love one another, how we care for one another, support one all these different one anothering phrases we always talk about. There are so many things we can do to be that distinctive Christian community. Jesus simply says, do the things that I do. When we're looking at spending our money, do we think, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? When we're working out how to respond to the driver who cuts us up on the road, How would Jesus respond in this situation? How would he bless that person rather than curse them in some way? How would Jesus call us to respond when that text message comes in with a nice juicy bit of gossip and we think, how are we going to respond to that? How would Jesus call us to respond? There's another metaphor 
as we go through this passage, and it's about the door. Laodicean church, this chameleon church, this church which has blended in to the culture around about it, the church that has gazed firstly on Jesus, then on the culture, and the culture is at current winning, Jesus, first of all, rebukes them. He calls them to repent. Now, our society doesn't like the idea of repentance very much. I don't think any of us, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but none of us like to be told we're wrong, do we? You know, it's not a natural human emotion. Sometimes we can say, you know, I learn from my mistakes. Yep, it's good to do that. It's a good thing to do. But sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes. We just keep making them again and again and again. And what we don't need is a learning curve. What we need is to repent. And what we need is to come back to those things that actually God is saying, this is what I want for you. And so the call of Jesus to this church is, look, it's it's not that you learn from what you're doing. It's that you need to repent and get back on track. You need to stop being lukewarm and start being either hot or cold. And so in verse 19, there is a call back to Jesus to repent, but also to accept that this repentance is based in the love of Jesus for his church. This call is not out of of just pointing the finger at the church, but it's out of the passionate love Jesus has for them. You know, the Bible is full of invitations to come back to God, absolutely full of it. And the Old Testament prophets, time and time again, they will say to the people of Israel, the Lord longs for you to come back to him. Just one example, Joel 2 verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Or our minds might be drawn to the the well-known story of the prodigal son. You know, where the, the father is there longing to welcome the son back home, waiting, running out to him, longing to draw people back to him. That is what God is like. When we repent, when we turn back to God, God welcomes us in forgiveness and longs to bring us back to him. Then we get down to verse 20, and the language suddenly changes, and we get a warm invitation from Jesus. The door is there, and Jesus is knocking to come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Very well-known words. But whose door is this, and why is Jesus knocking? Whose door is it? I found one writer who says this. I'm just going to read this out. It says, Jesus is not pleading at this point with an individual to be saved. But he is seeking admittance to a church. It's alarming to think of this, but Jesus is standing outside of the church and knocking because that's the position he was in. The Laodicean church had shut the door on the head of the church. They were smug in their prosperity, but Jesus was left standing in the cold. He was an outsider to the hearts of the entire congregation. So what the church had done is they thought they were all sorted and effectively they have shut the door on Jesus, who is now outside their fellowship and is knocking to come in. He is knocking to come in. Now, in the ancient world, as in many parts of the world today, hospitality was hugely important. How you welcomed people and how you had an open door to the stranger was something that was seen as a really significant thing. And so here we get in verse 20, Jesus standing at the closed door of the church, wanting to come in, wanting to have that hospitality with his people longing to be welcomed, longing to dine with them. You know, some writers say, actually, there's a bit of a foretaste here at the end of time banquet and a bit of a look back to communion as well. You can make your own mind up about that. But Jesus is knocking to come in. He wants to be known by the church and wants to know the church. He wants to have fellowship with them. 
is the door of our church wide open to what Jesus would do amongst us? That's the question we have to ask ourselves from this passage. Is the door of my heart, of your heart, wide open to the things of Jesus, to what the Spirit would say to each of us? You know, sometimes it can be easy to think, well, actually, we have a door ajar. But a door ajar is not, is not very useful, generally. We tend to have an open door or a shut door if we want it to do something. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel in my own life, that's actually how I respond to Jesus. You know, Lord, I want you to come in and I want you to help me deal with my problems, but please don't challenge me on my finance or sexual behavior. You know, that, that's just too much. Or we might say, you know, Lord, I want you to come in. I want you to comfort and console me. But please don't remind me of your commission when I'm going out on a Friday night. Please don't remind me of what it means to follow you then. Or we might rightly so think, actually, Lord, I am so glad that you have saved me. I'm so glad of the hope of eternity in my heart. But we keep the door ajar and we try and not let Jesus in and hear Jesus' challenge to share that hope of eternity with our friends and family. And so we can live with that uncomfortableness of Jesus wanting to come in and have full fellowship with us. But us saying, actually, still on my conditions. Still on my conditions. And we can try and keep the door ajar. See, what Jesus says is, I stand at the door or not. Will you open it? Not will you leave it ajar, but will you open it to the things of the Spirit, to the things of Jesus, so that we can fully know him and be fully known by him. This is the invitation to the church in Laodicea. It's the invitation to our church. It's the invitation to us as individuals to have the open door to the things of Jesus. And so we come down to verse 21. The fellowship that will happen now if they open the door will last forever. What a promise. It's not just for now, but it's for eternity. And so we come right to the end of the passage. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Are we listening to the words of this letter? You want a challenge? Go and read the other six. The other six letters to the other churches. And ask yourself the same question. When Jesus offers those diagnoses, are we listening to what the Spirit would say to the church? This is not an easy letter. It's not one of the most comforting ones, but it is a real challenge. But it's also a real comfort. When we open the doors of our hearts, Jesus comes in and we have fellowship with him. He will never leave us shut out, but we can shut him out. So just a few things to um, just reflect on, and we're just going to leave a moment or two of quiet as um, we reflect on these individually. First one is, are we living a lukewarm life? Are we living the kind of life where we, we think we're okay, but actually it's reducing our spiritual effectiveness? We have become the chameleon Christian. If the answer is yes, and this is between you and God, how do we change that? What do we do to stop blending in? How do we live that distinctive Christian life? Is the door of our heart fully open to Jesus? Or are we living with the door ajar or even the door closed? How do we ensure that it remains open? There's some door wedges out there. I can just see them looking through at the door. You know, that's really what we need, isn't it? We need a spiritual door wedge to ensure that the door to Jesus is always open. Would we ask God for that in our own lives today? That the things of the gospel, the things of the kingdom would be permanently open and that we'll be being changed and challenged and renewed by Jesus, the head of the church. A few moments of quiet, then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's just reflect on those points for a moment.
Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Lord, I just want to thank you for that beautiful image of you entering in and knowing us and being fully known by us, Lord. And we we just pray for each one of us in this room today. Perhaps we have been closing the door to you. Perhaps we've been trying to keep that door ajar. But Lord, I want to pray that that door will be firmly wedged open today in our hearts, that we might know you, that any of that lukewarmness, any of that chameleon nature will be um, bit by bit, piece by piece, be removed from our lives that we will have heard your words to us. And Lord, yeah, that we will just have the amazing hope that this passage finishes with, that hope of eternity, that hope of being victorious with you and reigning with you forever and ever. So Lord, we thank you for your love. Thank you that you love each of us. Thank you that it's out of love that you call us to you. Thank you that you have made the way so that we can know you. And thank you that you care about each of us. Thank you that you care about our church. And so, Lord, help us to be characterized by the open door to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.